Hello, it's Sylvie. Am I in time for Dr. Shiva? Are you there? Uh, oh, Sylvie, yes, quick, quick, quick. We're just getting started. Okay, this is Dr. Heather, Dr. Heather Uncensored. I'm just really excited to have Dr. Shiva. I'm really excited about his background and who he is. Uh, he, ha he does have four degrees from MIT, his PhD in biological engineering. He's a scientist, he's an inventor, he's an entrepreneur. Um, and he's also running for the U.S. Senate on a platform that's very dear to my heart, which is Truth, Freedom, and Health. So welcome, Dr. Shiva. And I'm Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you. I want to start with your grandmother, actually. Uh, I always love to know how people get to where they are and how, why they think the way they think. And when I read about your grandmother, I just really you know, related so much because, well, let me, let, why don't you talk about your grandmother instead of me? Yeah, well, well, first of all, you know, I grew up in two worlds. I grew up as a, you know, everyday working class kid in New Jersey, uh -huh. uh, where I was doing medical research when I started at the age of 14 at Rutgers Medical School. Oh, wow. Uh, my research fellow. But the reason I got into that was I had a previous life to coming to the United States. I, you know, as a kid, I grew up in India as a, um, you know, between when I was born to around seven. Um, I grew up in Bombay, which is a city, but I also grew up in um, in a village for about a third of my life in deep South India, where my grandparents were um, essentially subsistence farmers. They grew, you know, uh, cotton and coconuts and rice, you know, based on the seasons. And my grandmother on the uh, was a village healer. You know, India is a five thousand year old system of medicine that goes back, you know. Um, you know, many, many centuries of experience where it's passed on orally right. um, by tradition. And so she was a village healer. Typically in those days, every village had its own healer. Right. And my grandmother was that village, village's healer where uh, on weekends, she, as a public service, um, you know, 30, 40 people would line up. She would observe uh, their face. Um, there's a methodology and she would figure out their particular body's uh, imbalances uh, and what was the right medicine for that right person for at the right time, what we today call personalized medicine. And this was called Siddha, S-I-D-D-H-A, which actually predates uh -huh. Ayurveda. And Siddha actually is much more comprehensive. It has five different branches, which included martial arts. It included yoga, you know, body postures. It included marma, which was the use of the hands to manipulate particular meridians. It included the use of heavy metals at low dosages. Uh -huh. Affect you know what you would uh, 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 it's a form of you know the siddha medicine, right. and the other part of it is obviously meditation. So the siddhas believed you could not only was it important to get enlightened, but it was also important to learn how to preserve life for as long as you could. Right. So that's what my grandmother practiced. So I saw her empirically heal a lot of people, and that's what you know drove my interest in medicine. So by the time I was fourteen, when I came to the U.S., I was working as a full-time research fellow. Um, looking, applying computing to SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome, right. um, at Rutgers Medical School. Wow, so that was a journey that occurred, you know, from the time I landed in the United States. Right. Okay. That's great. I just want to go back to, you said it was Marma, the third thing? M-A-R-M-A, -A, yeah. Which, and is, that one like, of the, is that like a mudra? No, no. Marma is basically the use of hands to apply pressure. Oh, apply pressure. I get it. Yeah, okay. different parts of the bodies. It actually yeah. predates acupuncture. Right. So one of the great Siddhar yogis actually traveled all the way to China, and the Shaolin tradition was started in his name. And there's a big statue of him still there. 
So these siddhas, yeah. So the siddha tradition really originates in India, right. and it's unfortunate because many of the people in Japan know that the martial arts came from India. So all, right. there's a huge set of traditions which all originated from here in those five branches of yoga, and unfortunately, this the the people who practice siddha siddha were the Dravidians of India, which were sort of the indigenous people of India before the Aryan invasion took place. Oh wow! So many they were like think of them as Native Americans of India. Right. So, um, when the Aryan invasion took place, you know, some of them were pushed down to the south, and others were left way up in the north. Uh -huh. um, and you know, for all sorts of political reasons, um, their you know their entire <laughs> a legacy and history has been sort of forgotten, which wow. is unfortunate because so much of traditional medicine comes from them. That's amazing. Well, when I was nineteen, I went to India, and it really informed my life. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and also okay, and also the when you talk about heavy metals, would that be um, when you say low dosages, is that anything to do with homeopathy? Well, homeopathy, you know, it's a broad term to me. It's just the, the principle of hormesis. It's understanding what the low dosages are. Yeah. To, right. So in the Indian system, they knew, for example, basil had very low microdosing level of mercury or arsenic. Uh -huh. Each of these things at the at the right dosage actually helps the heart. So, for example, many yeah. of the heart. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, did I put arsenic in it, right? Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. So, uh, so they had figured out it was all about dosaging. In, in many ways, that medicine was really the pharmaceutical of that time, right? Because they would refine, refine, refine things. Yeah. Very, very specific dosages. Right. Yeah. So interesting. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So many, so much we could talk about with that. I tell you. Um, and so, okay. So then you're you're for you know you come over at. Seven or we were seven. I came, yeah, I came to the United States when I was seven. Okay. You know, India also has a caste system, right. so I was intertwined in two areas of interest: was medicine, and the other was the Indian caste system. We were considered untouchables in India. Wow. You won't find a lot of Indians like us here. That's um, amazing, Shiva. I just. Yeah, so I have a deep interest in politics. You know, in retrospect, it sort of took me a while to understand why I was so involved in politics and in medicine. Yeah. But the reality was, you know, in, we tend to separate these things. Uh -huh. the, a healer in the Indian tradition was known as a Vaidyar, V-A-I-Y-D-A-R. Uh -huh. And Vaidyar meant not only a healer, but also a fighter, a warrior. Uh-huh. Or both. Right. So what's happening in sort of the New Age movement in the United States is people sort of are very namby-pamby and sort of pussyfoot around politics. <laughs> right. And, and what's unfortunate is that the healer was also supposed to be a fighter. Yes, exactly. You fight against death. You fight against evil. You fight for justice. And you were supposed to also learn how to use, you know, the medical arts. So they were intertwined. Uh -huh. um, so... And that's who I have become, you know, and I, and I think it's because of those formative years growing up in a caste system where I was politicized and then to understand why there was oppression and also by the fact I saw a woman with no degrees heal people to understand that medical system. Yeah, so when I came to the United States, my parents came here in 1970. Uh -huh. We came here, you know, at the era of the Vietnam War, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. We settled this very traditional Indian family initially in Patterson, uh -huh. which is uh, predominantly African-American, then to... Clifton in New Jersey and then to Persephone and Livingston. As I've shared before, the reason I shared those towns are there's a very different towns from a pretty much all black town to an all Jewish town. Uh -huh. uh, Livingston being very wealthy, Patterson being still, I think, one of the poorer cities. 
Um, but I went through all those different public school systems. My parents kept moving to get, her, get to the better educational system. Right. And then when I was 14, I had finished um, calculus. I had no other math courses my high school would offer me. I was accepted in the summer um, of 77, 78 into a special program in Newark, New Jer- in New York University in computer science. One of 40 kids selected, very fortunate. Wow. Graduated top of the class, and I was given a full-time job at Rutgers Medical School in the heart of Newark, New Jersey. Uh-huh. A pretty tough neighborhood. Um, and, and But in that medical school, uh, I, you know, I was doing two things. One was using computers to understand sleep patterns in babies so you could predict the onset of an apnea when they stop breathing. Right. And I was also given another information technology project to convert the entire inner office mail system, you know, the inbox, outbox, folders, you know, the memo, blind carbon copy, what you call a very complex system right. of infrastructure that was used in offices to communicate into the electronic version. Uh-huh. And I wrote 50,000 lines of code as a 14-year-old kid, and I called that system email and uh, got the first U.S. copyright. This was before I came to MIT. Huh. And... Uh, I created email. I invented email as a kid, and it wasn't done at MIT. It wasn't done by the military. It was done by a 14-year-old kid in Newark, New Jersey. And do they still honor that? Well, I never sought credit for it, but I got the first U.S. copyright in 1982, officially recognizing me as the inventor of email. Again, I was brought up to be a humble Indian kid. But about seven years ago, all of this material was unearthed when my mom was dying in a suitcase, and Time Magazine wrote an article you can see right on my front page of yeshiva.com. Uh-huh. which says a man invented email. Right. That was in 2012, and it went into the Smithsonian. And then it created a very uh, interesting backlash by the white liberal elites uh-huh. who did right. not, it was like a new skull was found in Africa when it went into the Smithsonian. Right. A lot of a dark-skinned Indian guy, immigrant in, in Newark, inventing email blows the minds off. Most of these people claim that they want to help all the darkies you know, of the world. Right, right, right. It's a very interesting narrative because the truth is that I invented email. It wasn't done, but during those 30 years, I never talked about it. So I went into the Smithsonian, created this huge, quote unquote, controversy. Uh-huh. When there is no controversy, I wrote all the code. It's in the Smithsonian. I called it email. I have the first copyright, which is the only way to protect software inventions. So you can see the dialogue and people in Wikipedia wouldn't, even, wouldn't let even the truth be updated. It's fascinating. It is great. It's, and it also gets to now I understand why when you when you talk about certain things i understand um you know when i listen to your um videos watch your videos listen to your podcasts um why you have that visceral response in terms of the liberal elites I, we don't need to get into that right now but i think it's really well it's it's basically the same issue of the the caste system in india you had the quote unquote liberal elites on top who said they wanted to care for everyone else they know better than everyone else exactly and then they make policies. And these people are, you know, these are the same people who attack, you know, the white working class, you know, calling them racist. Yeah. When they, in fact, are the biggest racist. Uh-huh. Right. They're, they're the actual racist because they cover it. As Malcolm X said, they're like the northern wolves, you know? Right. <coughs> so, and most of them are here in Massachusetts. Uh-huh. Yeah, very patronizing. Um, yeah, that, yeah very patronizing, but they're actually the blue bloods who never left back for England after they lost the war. They embedded themselves here. Right. They believe they know better than you, uh-huh. and, they, and they control academia, and they, they attempt to control science. 
exactly. through what they call scientific consensus. And right. this is no different than the, in the old grammatical tradition of India, the priesthood, who thought they, they, they knew better than everyone else and they were like the quote-unquote, you know, um, witch doctors, right? Right. Who said that they had a direct connection to God and that everyone else was stupid. Yeah. It's the same attitude. Yeah. And when, yeah. So that's, that's why these things are in, intertwined. You cannot talk about the fight for truth, freedom, and health without talking about politics. They're, they're like, they're, no, of the, course not. they're the, both sides of it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I love that because I feel like what happened, you know, just with the whole, you know, medical freedom issues, it's really, it just, it's just so frustrating for me because when you know how many different ways people can heal, um, and then people are telling you one way is the only way and they get angry at you because they're believing a myth or whatever, you know. Um, so I love this. I, I love that you're speaking this truth. And um, it's, it's not something like when I look at the, you know, all the um, presidential candidates and I go, well, okay, I could like this person, I could like that person. But the truth is nobody's talking about health care uh, and how that you're never going to get the health care right unless we look at the well they don't talk about the health and healthcare. they're talking basically about insurance that's all right. they're talking about right because they don't understand they don't understand what real healthcare. like when you talk about it coming from you know what how indians five thousand years or even china five thousand years all these um ideas and just indigenous in um north america what they taught the white people we don't talk about that we don't talk about that that's our our right even though i'm a white person i am totally enmeshed in that in the earth and in the fact that it feeds us what we need well it's not even white or black look all traditions celtic traditions yeah right uh, all yeah. the traditions had in indigenous medicine there's my white guilt coming out yeah, so what, what has happened is, um, over the years, um, what's happened is that the advances that took place um, in infrastructure, for example, right? So if you look at where health, where, where like modern health really came from, like if you look at infectious diseases, and you go back to the 1800s, um, and to like, you know, 1950, if you look at that curve, you know, we were at 14 out of 100,000 people were dying out of infectious diseases in the early 1900s. Right. By 1953, only one out of 200,000 were dying from infectious diseases. Except they were so, getting ill from a lot of other things. Right. But that precipitous drop in infectious diseases, if you just use that, for example, was from the incredible amount of infrastructure that was put in place, you know, clean water, exactly. or hygiene. Right water and sanitation and transportation these were these were things that are and that and then if you say well where did that infrastructure come from it wasn't that was given to people it was because of massive political movements of women fighting yeah. i mean a lot of people don't understand how filthy the working conditions were in the 1800s early 1900s in this country exactly. if you went to work in a factory you were basically you know you could die or um or if you went to a hospital Right. So the work, the American working class fought for this. People's names we don't even know. Right. That right. resulted in the in the nineteen thirties and earlier on um, that these that these that these infrastructure gains were given, which is what actually affected public health. Exactly. By the time the vaccines, for example, come like the measles vaccine in nineteen sixty three, ninety eight percent of measles already was eradicated. Exactly. So. So it wasn't medical, Western medical interventions that really precipitously dropped 
infectious diseases. It was these infrastructure changes. Now, and I just want to interrupt for a second because that's why I can be proud of being a naturopathic medical doctor is that the whole tradition in the late 1800s, that was part of it, that we needed clean soil, we needed clean air, and we needed clean water. And that was something that they fought for. Yeah, so if you go to tradition, I mean, I grew up around, my grandparents are basically tribals, okay, indigenous people. You go to a little hut, they're beautifully clean, exactly. okay, they're small. Right. People knew how to take care of, um, you know, you, every home had a cow. The cow's maneuver was used in your in your fields, right? right? Yeah. Um, and then the cow was given your banana leaves that you ate on. So it was completely, you know, so the cow was a garbage disposal. It produced yogurt, it produced manure, produce urine, all these things were valuable things, you know, yeah. that could be reused. Um, so people had learned how to live in a very good way with nature, and they had systems. Um, in fact, when, when the British came to India, a lot of people don't know this, there was very little landless peasantry or landless poverty even, except for a few leper colonies. So it was after the British colonial invasion that you created all this separation and division and dysfunction among these village systems, which were quite interesting. They were very harmonious with nature. India had hundreds of thousands of villages, small villages, almost like small cells in the body um, that had their own village head communities. Always typically women, a lot of women involvement in the leadership of these villages for thousands of years. Yeah. And, uh, so these rich traditions were practiced. In fact, that if you look at all traditions, uh, this was the way things ran. So when industrialization took place and we moved from the agrarian world to the industrial world around in the U.S. around the 1900s, um, people recognized the conditions we were going to, right? That they weren't that good. So people demanded public infrastructure. That's and that's what took place. Yeah. So that's where real health came from when we moved to the industrialized era. Now, what's interesting to note is around the 1950s, um, is when the McCarthy era starts and vaccinations begin. Right. And there, to me, uh, very few people, I don't think anyone else has observed this. It's an interesting observation I came across because you start seeing that the state, the establishment, went on a fierce attack against working people because they hated the fact that these people rose up in the 1900s and fought for their basic rights. Right. That's right. right? So they created the Red Scare. Everyone was a communist. Yeah. Right? And it was really not about communism. It was basically telling people you don't fight for your rights or we'll, we'll call you a commie and we'll throw you in prison or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, mean, and then and secondarily, you also saw the innovation, quote-unquote, innovation of vaccines occurring. Right. Which is a very interesting, you know, coincidence, right? So you have McCarthy era taking place and the um, invasion of medical interventions, which are supposed to you know, be all the savior. When in fact, when you look at the long history, it's always been um, the living conditions, you know, how we lived with our environment. So public health, um, that's what really supported health. Yes, that's right. Exactly. And, you know, where I, um, when I moved from Montreal, I moved to uh, New Brunswick and that's where the Acadians were. When I I wrote a novel about this and just doing the research on the Micmac, the first nations, the people there, and just realizing how little ill health they had until the white person came was extraordinary that they really had, just like you said, indigenous people all over the world had figured out that it needed to be needed to have, you know, clean living. And to hear the white, you know, these, well, to me, these old white men in terms of McCarthy era, in terms of vaccines, it's, it really is about people who have, retained that power and then are forcing these things down our throat and people are rising up and 
um, you're someone that, that, that I think can help really um, push this narrative. Yeah, and if you look at so if you look at these medical interventions like pharmaceutical drugs and vaccines, right? I think the broad time scale is that they've had very little effect versus public health infrastructure. Yeah, so what's happened in the United States is the um, it's a very interesting observation that if you look at the uh, influx of career politicians into politics, and then you look at how the economy is structured, what you find is that the career politician um, who is basically interested in one goal to get elected and reelected because they don't have another job, right. never vote for infrastructure investments. Uh -huh. So if you look at the economy as having three buckets, you know, one bucket is um, our tax dollars can be allocated to what some people call equity, free stuff, right? Medicare, welfare, food stamps, all that. Uh -huh. Another portion of the budget or another set of the budget could be allocated to security, right? Uh -huh. um, military, borders, you know, EPA regulations, that kind of thing. Uh -huh. and the third is infrastructure. So if you're a politician who enters office, where do you think you're going to vote? Because if you have a two-year term as a House of Representatives, six-year, invariably they always vote for bucket one, which is equity, give away free stuff, because that almost guarantees them to get elected again. Yeah. They rarely vote for infrastructure, which is a long game, because you don't see infrastructure stuff immediately in two years. Sometimes yeah. it takes 10, 20 years, right? The results. Right. So the politician always votes for their own, um, uh, you know, self-perpetuation, which is so they, it's easy to say, I'm going to give away free stuff, right? Right. What's ended up happening is we have crumbling infrastructure. And when I mean infrastructure, not only roads and bridges and highways, I'm talking about water systems, yes. right? Yes. We're talking about the healthcare systems, the educational systems, the digital infrastructure. You know, only five people own um, communication now, Google, Facebook, and three other CEOs of the major telcos. So we have not invested in infrastructure because a career politician never will. So as a result of that, we're seeing greater declines in public health again. No, not you have dirty air, dirty water, dirty food. Right. So in, and... This is the interesting thing. I'll give you by way of example, Massachusetts got an F minus minus in infrastructure by the American Society of Civil Engineers. Oh, really? Yeah, 125, 123 points out of 350. This is no joke. Right. And when, what year was that? This is just uh, 16 months ago. Just They do the survey once every four years, I think. Wow. So Hawaii, I think, is up there, I think, number one. But these, um, I think overall, the United States got a D plus and infrastructure for, for the world, okay? And it's gonna take us around four trillion to bring that up to a B. So they're, they're the, because of the corruption of the career politician, um, by the way, to give you by, let me finish that. So Massachusetts got an F minus in infrastructure and it also got a D plus in public integrity, which means it's one of the worst corrupt states. So corruption and crumbling infrastructure go hand in hand. Right. So because they cannot invest in infrastructure because of their own corrupt, these politicians are caught in their own golden handcuffs, right? They get into office, they don't invest in infrastructure. And if they do, it's highly corrupt because that's who funds their election campaigns. Yeah. So we don't have proper infrastructure. So you don't have clean water, clean air, clean food, and you're never going to get it with these guys. Right. So they create a fake problem, right? Right. So instead of saying, oh, oh, you know what? The real way to solve public health is we should make sure the sewer systems are fixed. Right. Uh -huh. 
Water systems are fixed. Look at Flint, Michigan, right? We need to make sure we don't poison the air. Because they're unable to do that, they therefore create a fake problem and a fake solution to act as though they care about health. So the fake problem is, um, you know, uh, uh, immune health is a function of vaccines, okay? Uh And therefore, we need to mandate vaccines. Therefore, they create a thing called herd immunity, right? So they create a fake science to support a fake problem, to get a fake solution. And that's being done because they can't really do the real solution, which is infrastructure. Right. Okay. Yes. So that's where we're at. And so if you look at the 1962 vaccination program, you know, installed by a Kennedy, John Kennedy, that was based on an old, outdated science, which I've talked about, a, a nearly a hundred year old science now, yeah. Um, yeah. which only considers the innate and the, uh, um, innate and the adaptive immune system. So they said, based on that, we need to vaccinate the hell out of everyone. Yeah. That was an utter failure from the injury. So then another Kennedy, Edward Kennedy, creates the, the 1986 vaccine courts. Okay. Uh-huh. He, was, he was a co-sponsor. Right. Which was a band-aid on top of a fake science model, which was a 1962 vaccination program. Right. That and now people are noticing that what that program really did was shield us from going after big pharma. Right. It, it was total nonsense, and that was brought to you by Ed Kennedy. Uh-huh. And now you have Bobby Kennedy out there, who I've been very critical of. Um, he's acting. You know, the Kennedys always get at both sides, right? They make money on both sides, or they get their popularity on both sides. So he's been in this struggle for 17 years. You know, everyone thinks he's a big fighter for vaccines. The result is they've had no results. Um, it's basically trying to put a Band-Aid on top of another Band-Aid, which is saying, let's talk to legislators. Let's try to create vaccine, another, <laughs> another bureaucratic institution for vaccine safety. Right. Well, the reality is the entire 1962 vaccination program should never have been implemented because it's based on an old science. So I put forward a health bill which says all of this should go away and we should decentralize health back to the patient-doctor relationship. Patient, that's where health happens. So you have people who've been involved in these anti-vax movements who frankly are running a business racket like many of these other nonprofits. Like, you know, people say we want to solve cancer. Well, they go solve, start the Breast Cancer Foundation. Well, that's become a billion-dollar unit. Yes. And I don't see breast cancer being solved. No. So well, that's, that's, that breast cancer w- might be solved if you had infrastructure that was clean water, clean air, and clean soil. Exactly. You know, um, I don't, I, you know, truthfully, like I totally get, I understand what you're saying. I also really um, am grateful for people, even though they, for what they've done, the awareness they've brought, the work, the whatever. I totally understand what you're saying, but I love what you're saying about just being from the bottom up and that you've brought this from an Eastern perspective that is so um, truly holistic and truly understanding of your environment and the person's health. And you're the only person that I've heard say this in terms of who is, you know, whether in government or running for government. So I'd just like to talk a little bit more about the health systems that you created, um, like your business model and how that model would you know, project out into the, into America, really. Yeah. So, so, so first of all, you know, health to me has been something that uh, goes back, as I shared with you, to a big legacy of mine with my grandmother and what I did growing up as a kid in New Jersey, you know? And you saw people get better, correct? 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so, so that's what so, gives us encouragement that we know that the natural world has so much. Well, all of these pharmaceuticals ultimately come from the natural world. So um, I, think, I think the reality is this, that um, my entire life has been based on health, you know. Uh, and, and the interesting thing is email. It's a very interesting uh, dialectic here. The establishment likes to say that all great innovations come from war and death, right? Right. from the military industrial complex. So the important thing is email was not, this is what really perturbs them. And this is why there was such a vitriol is that not only did I say email was created by an immigrant kid, right? A 14 year old kid in Newark, but there's something even deeper. It was created in a health sciences institution. You see right. an institution that was dedicated to health, not killing people. Right. We've been brainwashed to think we fund military and Oh, shouldn't we be so happy? We got Velcro or Tang, right? Uh, which, by the way, didn't come out of the military, okay? So we've been propagandized that we fund war and we get innovation. When the truth is the invention of email occurred in a health sciences institution trying to take women who are disenfranchised from technology from the typewriter to the keyboard by a 14-year-old kid in Newark. Yeah. So the deeper notion is where does innovation come from? And we've been taught that all great innovation must come from war and death or big pharma, big academia, big universities and big military you say that it doesn't come bottoms up and even activism we are taught should be top down and this is what this is why i think this is very important because what's happened is the real activism that ever gave us even health heather came bottoms up it wasn't fdr who gave us clean water you know or sanitation it was working people's names we don't even know that is why even political change and political activism gets institutionalized by only a few people who can own it, right? And they create their brands around it, Susan Komen and the Breast Cancer Foundation. And, you know, the Kennedys can only be fighting for civil rights. And I think this is important to discuss because until people break from this mythos, that's why California failed. That's why New York failed, because it's tied to a few people. Yeah. And, and if you look at any of these big political movements, like the civil rights movements, for example, right? It was bottoms up that was taking place. Absolutely. And then people hijacked it. Yeah. They promoted someone like Martin Luther King, and the Kennedys did that. Because they, and they never solved the real issues, which was for black people in, in inner cities to get infrastructure. Same thing occurred in India. Yeah. People were rising up bottoms up to kick out the British, and then they flew in Gandhi. Right. And who basically transferred power from you know, white men with crowns and brown men with white hats, you say? That's so right. this is one of the important things that people don't want to discuss. They get afraid, oh my God, why is Shiva saying that, you know, we're going to disunite the movement? No, this is why the movements don't go anywhere. Yeah, no, I don't, I'm not, I'm, yeah, I don't feel, I don't mind discussing that. I just feel like, I, you know, I grew up in Canada, so mm -hmm. um, I, I feel like, I just want to say thank you very much for what you guys did. And now let's, can we see that it comes from experience, from each person's experience. I mean, I was able to heal myself from Graves' disease without having to have my thyroid removed or irradiated, and there was no TSH left. I mean, the people said it was impossible to do that. But my experience, coupled with you know treating patients for all those years at that point, probably 20, 25 years, I knew I could do that. And I think it's every individual's experience when you feel empowered by realizing what you can do. And I, and I guess that's why I don't even... You need to do that where you are in Massachusetts. And I just feel like what I want my 
audience, my listeners to understand is this voice and this experience that you've had, you've been able to bring this to people to say, this is what's going on. And I just love that. I don't want to minimize anything that you're saying and that's important to you. I just think that for me, the bottom line is for patients or people to understand the power we have within ourselves. And we just don't need to look at, you know, like you say, the top tier. You're absolutely right. Yeah. What, what, what I'm saying is all health and change. I mean, if you look at health, it's not only your body's health, it's environmental health, infrastructure health, health in a broad way. That's why, you know, one of the organizations I created was called Systems Health. Right. And if you look at the health of your body or the health of the planet or the health of soil or the health of even uh, a computer or the health of a bridge, they all follow the same principles. Or the health of your emotions. Yeah, but they follow the same principles called transport, conversion, and storage. Uh -huh. in, in the traditional systems, they call it vatha, pitta, kapha. These are, uh -huh. so I've figured out a way to explain any system in the universe um, using these very powerful concepts that you can apply to any health and that was the um what what i eastern medicine with, with what's called actually control systems theory um used to teach a course at mit for three years but basically we used to have people come into this course 300 people would show up on a thursday evening half of the side would be your mds phds engineering student the other half were people would call your woo woo people right yeah. your acupuncturist your, your and your nature pets that kind of people but and both of them would look each, each other cross-eyed. In this course, it basically told people and, and informed people that the terminology was different. So when they were using certain terms in Chinese or Indian medicine, uh -huh. the terms actually linked to, to engineering systems theory. And no one had brought this out, and that ended up becoming the basis of systems health, which was a course we've educated thousands of people through it. Right. And so, when, so I think people need to understand it's not just about your body's health. Because in traditional systems of medicine, the thesis was that you were supposed to use your body as a laboratory, and so quite a deep concept, yeah. to understand the forces of transport, conversion, and storage, and the movement of energy, the conversion of energy, which is conversion, and the storage of energy. Dr. Shiva, can you just repeat that transport, the three words? Conversion and storage. Yeah, there's a, oh, there's, there's a whole, so System South is where we have a course series, but I also created an app called Your Body, Your System, uh -huh. where anyone can use to understand how these forces work in your own body. Right. So what's happened, what the quote-unquote white man <laughs> did right. uh, in their reductionist way, yeah. is anytime they learn something, even yoga, it all it always becomes reductionist okay yeah, exactly. so yoga and even the principles of medicine were not supposed to be for your body right you see transport conversion and storage you can apply to your body to understand movement of energy which is what we call an ayurveda vata uh -huh. conversion pitta and storage kapha right uh -huh. but those you can apply to your computer okay uh -huh. vata is a transport of information input and output okay your display and your keyboard conversion is your CPU and storage is your hard drive. You say, uh -huh. so these systems could be applied to anything, and so that's what I uncovered, brought that out in systems health, and but the goal, in my view, that the ancient teachers were trying to teach was that these principles you were supposed to use how your body worked, but you were supposed to use that to understand how all systems work. Uh -huh. So what happens in the yoga movement is you have people who learn yoga postures and this, and they'll become very narcissistic. That is all about their body, but so they've sort of they've taken a very small piece 
of this knowledge because they don't really understand what yoga is. Right, exactly. They don't really understand what traditional medicines are. So right. that's why I've seen in the new age movement of health, you have this dysfunction. Yes. Um, people will be talking about, you know, all this interesting stuff. I had this experience that and speaking these very flowery new age terms, uh -huh. but there's no groundedness to what they're talking about right. because it all ends up becoming about them and not understanding that those principles can actually be applied to anything. They're actually engineering principles. So that's what came out of my Fulbright work in systems health and your body, your system uh -huh. to teach people that there are underlying principles way at the core level that affect your body, but they also affect the computer. They affect the, and they're the same principles. Okay, so let's just take an example. Let's say someone has an autoimmune disease. How does transport, conversion, and storage happen there? Yeah, so first of all, um, these three forces, transport, conversion, and storage, uh, every system in the universe has five basic elements, input and output, right? Uh -huh. So when something comes in, uh, the forces of transport are involved, Right, the forces of conversion, the forces of storage, and then you get output, okay? Okay. Now, there are five other elements, four other elements which are related to this. These systems, the input and the output, can, that's just that what I call a dumb system, and I'll come back to this. Okay. But the more interesting systems are intelligent systems where you have a goal that you actually manipulate the input into the system to get the desired output you want using a sensor. So let me give you an example, okay? Let's take a simple toaster, okay? Let me come, and I'll come to the immune system because I need to explain this. Okay. A simple toaster, you put in a piece of toast, and then you press it down, and what that does, it inputs electricity, right? Right. The electricity is transported through the to toaster. That's the transport. It moves. Right. Then the coils of that toaster convert that electricity to heat, oh. okay? Uh-huh. Which is stored in that toaster, and then the output is you get a brown piece of toast, okay? Right. So that's what's called a simple system input, output, transport, conversion, storage. Now, let's say you wanted to create an intelligent toaster. You say, you know what, I want my toast brown ever so lightly. Maybe you could set different indications, right? Uh -huh. That would be your goal. Well, inside the toaster could be a sensor, an optical sensor, right? Right. We could see how much it's being brown, and it would basically keep sending electricity to the until a point where it was brown and then we turn it off, right? That's an intelligent system, very much like your thermostat in your house. Right. So, so in control systems theory, we call that an intelligent system. It has input, transport, uh -huh. conversion, storage, okay. output. But also it starts with a goal. So if you take immunity, the immune system, what is the goal of an immune system? Well, the goal of the immune system is to maintain homeostasis, okay, yeah. and resilience. Right. The purpose of any immune system is to be resilient, which means when it is attacked by external pathogens, right, yeah. it is supposed to be able to take on those pathogens, you know, learn from it and strengthen itself and then get stronger. Okay. So when the next pathogen hits, it gets stronger. Just very much like when you lift weights. Okay. Yeah. You may be weak initially, you, you, you work out and then you get resilient, you bounce back. May, it may be painful the first day, but you come back stronger the second, third, fourth, fifth day, right? Right. So the purpose of the immune system is what's the goal? Resilience. Very much like, you know, your thermostat, you set it at 78 degrees. It's going to try to maintain 78 degrees. Right. Your body naturally wants to maintain its homeostasis, okay? Right. And that homeostasis is a function of its particular way it moves energy, transport, how it processes 
information or matter, which is your digestion, conversion, and how it stores these things. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. All right. So that's, so that's, so in the immune system, your body is set up a natural way to take in external input, okay? Uh -huh. um, and its goal is to take that input and modulate it in such a way that it gets stronger and stronger and stronger, okay? Now, if you, so, and so if you look at that, one of the videos I did is on the modern immune system. If you go look at that, you'll see that the, the body has the innate immune system, which is the one that's first exposed to a pathogen, right? Uh -huh. Which in the old model, that would just trigger the adaptive immune system and it would create antibodies, okay? Uh -huh. that's, they just had a two model system of the immune system. And my thesis is that's so old, it's 100 years old. Yep. And so what you're saying is, well, I'm going to give an act vaccine to mimic that pathogen. And then if it creates antibodies, I'm in good shape. Well, that's total nonsense. The reality is that your body has three other subsystems or systems. It's got your gut bacteria, the microbiome. Yep. It's got the interferon system, which is a missing link between the adaptive and the innate. Uh -huh. And it's got your neural system and the gut-brain axis, which links all this. Okay? Uh -huh. So when you look at it, the system is a much more complicated system. And the body it expects the pathogen to come through the innate immune system and turn on the interferon system, work with the microbiome, you know, turn on antibodies and modulate that so you don't get neuroinflammation, okay? It's supposed to be in beautiful choreography. Right. You stick in a vaccine now, well, maybe, you, which goes through a very different pathway, which the body is not used to, okay? Yep. That's not what nature remembers especially it's being injected into your bloodstream and it's nowhere near what the what our body was used to for billions of years right so now your body in my view will probably as data shows as is emerging try to react not probably but will react in a very in a differential way so some of those other systems like the interferon system the microbiome right because it's a new way that viruses, that pathogen is being showed or that antigen, yeah. it may actually create autoimmunity, right? It may be in an autoimmune state because it's thinking it's fighting off something and it never turns itself off. Exactly. Because in the normal course of events, things come in, okay? They're transported in, they're properly converted through the interferon system, right? Yeah. And then memory is stored, storage, right? Which is a memory of that virus. Yeah. So the next time that virus hits, when the interferon system is turned on, it actually not only remembers that virus, 1,000 genes are turned on that it actually remembers many other viruses, okay? Or is able to handle other viruses. So we have storage, memory. We have conversion, okay? Uh -huh. Which is the conversion of that information of that to knowledge of that and how to react. So all of these principles play out beautifully in the immune system. Yes, right. Well, and, and it is, it's about interfering <laughs> really that's why they call them interferons and the, now the japanese have done some great work but the interferon system i don't even think the typical md or the uh, pediatrician even learns about it you know that was a base one of the parts of my doctoral work at mit which we actually mathematically modeled using this technology i created called cytosolve cytosolve is a very powerful technology which is the basis of one of my companies and, and the reason we created that was to really identify medicines that worked or did not work and toxic or non-toxic 
Because today, the way we build medicines on both sides, be it on the pharmaceutical side or even on the new age alternative medicine side, there's a lot of snake oil out there. You know, uh -huh. on the pharma side, the typical models, you find some synthetic drug, you test it in a test tube, then you kill a bunch of animals and then you go um, test it on humans. OK, uh -huh. uh, 13, 15 years. Right. A lot of side effects, et cetera. And um, and then on the on the alternative medicine side, people are just putting together stuff and selling it at Whole Foods. Um, there's no substantiation if their stuff works or not. So with our technology, I'm actually able to take the known science of molecular mechanisms, mathematically model those chemical reactions on the computer, uh -huh. which are all coming from actually in vitro and vivo tests, use that chemical interaction understanding to actually test stuff on the computer, Heather. Right. And using that, we're doing that long before test tube, long before you go kill animals, long before you go test on humans. Right. So, so when my grandmother would combine different ingredients, she did it based on knowledge stored in her, right? Yeah. From formulae. Here, we're actually able to do that alchemy on the computer. Right. And so, you know, uh, this is how you actually figure out what's going on, whether it works or not, long before you go waste time and money, you know? Right. Sounds, that sounds wonderful. I think that's one of the reasons that, for me, it was never really even about botanicals. I love homeopathy because of what it does energetically. And that's why now my thing is just people, once you balance your biochemistry, really get them to tell the story. And I think that really integrates with what you're talking about in terms of the experience and coming from, you know, the bottom up. Um, people are becoming more aware of themselves. And then if you have a system like what you're doing, you're not giving them crap. Um, but they are actually moving from a much deeper level in terms of their own healing, and then they can add these medicines if they need to. And sometimes you just don't, because when you talk about um, infrastructure, if we do have clean water and clean air and clean soil, and we go out and, and the whole thing, you know, about forest bathing, that that actually boosts your immune system, it is a much more, it's just an integrated and a, a truly holistic approach to healing and to health. And, and that's why anybody who, any, you know, like California, New York, now these children, this is the most devastating thing for me, is the children being subjected to, um, and we don't know in, in terms of, you know, is it the microbiome? Is it the uh, um, disruption of the interferon? What is going on? And, you know, the neural pathways, why they are reacting so badly um, some of them and, and some of them don't. And that's why people don't understand the whole thing about vaccines or just about um, eating properly. So I think you, I think we, I can just see so many different um, levels here. And I just really love the work that you're doing in terms of uh, cytosol, the, you know, the computation. Yeah, yeah. So the two things I do have there, uh, the number of things in the health area that are act very active. Yeah. One is cytosol, which is this very powerful, you know, rocket science technology. Uh-huh. So let's us understand at the molecular level to find it's really a scientific source of truth. Yeah. We've used that, by the way, uh, to discover many natural compounds and interact synergies at work. We right. actually use that, you know, people, you know, pharma is considered still the gold standard in science. I actually okay. use that as a test case to find combinations of uh, uh, went through trillions of potential drug combinations, find two that actually worked. Uh -huh. better than even their standard drug and got it allowed through the FDA. So we showed that even the FDA respects what we're doing. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And then, so that's cytosol. It's really an engine for alchemy. Uh -huh. The second thing is systems health, which is my educational program that integrates Eastern medicine with control systems engineering. And we right. teach that to people. It's a, 
People can go online. We're training MDs. And we've done it in such a way that once you learn the course, we give you tools that you can go teach it to other people wow. and serve. So it's learn, teach, and serve. Because there's no way I can be teaching this. Right. The third thing we have is your body, your system, which is a tool that helps people understand. They can use it on their own end. The fourth thing we've done is if people go to Whole Foods, about five years ago, there was a big movement for you know raw foods or the clean food movement. There was no standards for it. So um, I led the effort to create the first clean food label, which is an integration of um, safe foods that are minimally processed and high bioavailability, which is how traditional foods were created. Right. So you go to Whole Foods, like if you look at like Health Aid, which is a product for kombucha, you'll see the raw label on it. Right. That's using the label that I created. Oh, and there's also a clean label. Uh -huh. So, you know, we don't, we didn't talk a, a lot about this because I don't like to, you know, talk about all the other, it's, I don't have the time. But, and then more recently, I just finished a movie with, uh, that Pierce Brosnan produced and his wife called Poisoning Paradise. I'm the main scientist in it. It exposes what's occurred on the island of Kauai. It's won around 20 film awards. You can get it on iTunes. Poisoning Paradise? Yep. And it exposes how every politician gets paid off, including Bernie Sanders by big agrobiotech, okay? Right. Um, and, and it really exposes what's going on on the island of Kauai, where half of the island has been used uh, as a test field for testing on the native Hawaiians. Right. And where can you see this film? You can get it on iTunes. It's called Poisoning Paradise. Okay. Yeah. Wow, you are, you just do so much. You think so deeply. I just really love being able to talk to you, Dr. Shiva. And I just wish you the best with everything that you're doing. Um, unfortunately, we have to end now. I think we could, I could talk to you for hours. And Great. Thank you. Yeah. And, yeah. I'd love to talk to you about even how your family came over here. I mean, there's just so many more questions that I have. But thank you so much. And good luck with everything. Yeah, thank you. Be well, Heather. So how did you like that, Sylvie? Oh, magnifique. Magnifique. Ceci bon. <laughs>